You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Welcome to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Sarah. This is Chris. Deacon Basil. And today we are going to be talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and whether or not he has anything to say about modern psychotherapy. Not really. So, yeah, uh, Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> Deacon is, is extending charitably the opportunity to talk about Aquinas on his podcast, which we are recording in his church. In his Byzantine church. Yes. So who knows where this this will go. Chris um, is very excited for this topic. Anyone who knows anything about anything knows that the whole, like, East versus West Palamas versus Aquinas narrative is oversimplified and and our heads aren't going to explode by talking about Aquinas in a Byzantine church. That's my basic position. We're also going to only talk about a very specific aspect of Thomas's thought, namely his thoughts on thoughts. And uh, I I think we can get through the I think we can get through the next like half hour without like tearing each other's <laughs> faces off. What do you think? Oh, I suppose that's worth it. If it if you guys do tear each other's faces off, um, I'm just gonna wish I had popcorn. Yeah. So Sarah will be like this the spectator in the background. Um, I yeah. like both. Breathe with both lungs. Breathe with both. Ah, oh, see, even that is like not a. It's not a lung. Like the. Like. Um, oh, this is the Byzantine tradition owes a lot to. Greek fathers, correct? Yeah, I mean, everything. Okay. You know who else was Greek? Uh, St. Gregory Polymnus. Yeah, who loved Aristotle. So, no, and, and right there. we've talked about this quite a bit, actually, is that there, this divide is really kind of arbitrary in some ways. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, we give each other a hard time um, about it. But really, I think deep down what, what we can say is that there are some disagreements. But sure, by definitely, and large, definitely. the deeper aspect of, of uh, what is being said is, is certainly the same. And um, that I think one of the advantages of uh, being able to dialogue about these things is that we're able to, to really kind of express what is similar and also what is different so we can understand ourselves and the other person in a deeper way. And I think that's that's coincidentally one of the beauties of therapy. That's right. Um, and that's right. So we try to what do. we dearly try, especially in couples therapy. Yeah, um, group. So group therapy. So maybe, yeah. So Chris, tell us a little bit about kind of your experience with Thomas. Um, yeah, I, I got interested in philosophy um, maybe around the same time I kind of became interested in, in Catholicism. And uh, originally through philosophy of religion, um, but I met I met all the right Thomists in my life, and I met the kind of Thomists who aren't like crabby and afraid of new things and afraid of languages that aren't Latin, and so they really pointed me in the right direction. And for years and years, back in upstate New York, growing up or not growing, excuse me, growing up. Growing up formatively in my young adulthood, we had <laughs> we had an Aristotle club that met on Saturday mornings, and we would just read Aristotle. 
Um, it was super fun because after a long day, a long week at work, you know, sometimes you just need to decompress with some light and refreshing entertainment, like um, reading Aristotle's Metaphysics or, you know, the medieval commentaries on Aristotle's Physics. You and I have different definitions of light entertainment. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> so I got into uh, Thomas through Aristotle, who he refers to. Does anyone know what Thomas calls Aristotle? Uh, the philosopher? Yep, the philosopher, capital P. Um, but Capital F. Yeah, philosopher, <laughs> F, come on. I get an F. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, um, you know, started started reading... So, you know, I see it as one long tradition, right? Even Plato, I see, I see, I don't see, that's why I don't like this polarity. Like, you know, either this, you know, like Coke, or you like Pepsi, you know, like Palamas, or you like Aquinas. Plato, or, like, they're all part of this tradition. Plato, then Aristotle builds on Plato. Um, the Arabic commentators, the Veroese and Avicenna build on them. The medieval philosophers, like, um, like Peter Lombard, Al Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, Scotus, they build on, on them. And then there's, you know, contemporary or modern Thomists or scholastic philosophers like Charles de Conninck and um, Jacques Maritain who build on them. So we're all part, well, no, maybe not you, but I, <laughs> I, I like to, I like to, you know, s swim in this stream of philosophy that really, I think the church uh, should be very proud of. Most of these philosophers, with the exception of the ones, you know, born before Christ, like Plato, were, were Christians and uh, Christian philosophy, but um, it's accessible, I think, to anybody. Yeah, I think, my wife, um, my wife, uh, right when we really first got married, I kind of exposed her to philosophy, um, and <laughs> sounds like a misdemeanor. That does. Sound <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, no. So I kind of exposed her to to the the different writings, and um, she was reading a uh, a uh, copy of. Um, Plato's Republic. Nice. Um, while she was, I think she was at a dance. Uh, she's a professional dancer. While she was dancing. Um, while, while <laughs> she was just sitting there, it was really amazing. No, but you know, like when you know, on downtime and she stuff. She was a ballerina. She yeah, she's not, a ballerina. Not, yeah, not yeah. at the other dancer. Right. <laughs> not so, the kind of dancer that exposes her philosophy. Right. <laughs> anyways, sorry. She is gonna kill me when this goes live. But anyways, so she was sitting there, and and the problem was was that people were coming up being like. Why are you reading that? You know what what's going on? And I think, you know, is it for like a class? Oh, is it for yeah. something else? And yeah. I think whenever people kind of hear about these philosophy uh, about philosophy in general, it's this kind of abstract thing that has nothing to do necessarily with with my life Thank in a practical for, way. And that's yeah. that's not at all the case. Um, no. If it were, um, that it would have died out years ago. Um, it's not just something fun you do on Saturday morning. It actually has something that has those Saturday mornings that you were experiencing it had something oh to do gosh. with the rest of your week as well. Yeah, thank you. You know what? That's something I take so much for granted now that I didn't even think to start with that. Uh, Mortimer Adler, who is a, another, I guess, contemporary um, adherent of this school of thought, wrote a book called Aristotle for Everybody. It was originally supposed to be Aristotle for Children, <laughs> but he thought that, like, you know, most adult, uh, like, maybe, like, American adult readers are about at that level anyway, so it was Aristotle for Everybody. And... Um, you know, he really devoted his career to to pushing this point that, like, the man on the street is a philosopher. Everyone is a philosopher. Uh, you know, f philosophy is the love of wisdom, and so anyone who's ever thought about anything is engaging in the act of philosophy. Now, it can be more or less rigorous and more or less correct, 
and it helps to have a teacher and, and training and, um, and to be familiar with the traditions, um, that, especially the traditions you're a part of. But yeah, like anyone who's ever had a debate on social media has been engaging in philosophy. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, it's about as universal as you can get. It's also a meta discipline. So people go, you know, today we have like an era of hyper-specialization. People can study psychotherapy or, or um, physics, engineering, medicine, you know, they can be mechanics or welders or carpenters, whatever it is they do, they're, they're learning some specific discipline with its own norms and practices, but over and above their specific discipline are a set of philosophical assumptions. Most of the time, you're not taught those philosophical assumptions. So that's what's missing in, in our education is we get, we get good at this, our, our practice and we even get a little bit of theory, but the sort of meta stuff isn't talked about. Like, I love that the first question in our first episode was what is your theory of healing? There are so many assumptions that psychotherapists have. Like psychotherapists are people who, you know, they work with, um, they work with clients, they work with human persons to help them live better lives. But oftentimes without asking questions like what is a human person and what does it mean to live a good life? Right? I think you said something like that, Sarah. So. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a temptation, especially in psychotherapy, to um, jump, fr well, I should say, I believe that psychology, as far as a, a psychotherapeutic interaction, is actually philosophy in action. Yeah, totally. Um, it is sort of the practical side of, of abstract philosophy in some way. That mean, I mean, abstract in, in uh, philosophy, meaning, ethics, is, ethics, you yeah. know, is a practical science for Aristotle, right. for, for Aquinas. So there's theoretical and practical knowledge, and uh, you need both. Right. And definitely, you know, you would need your practical knowledge informed by the theoretical. Right. But the problem is, is that sometimes psychotherapists jump from an assumption, a philosophic assumption, to this is what I'm going, an, a, a psychological intervention. They yeah, jump sure. From the, the, they kind of just say, well, I need this CBT worksheet, um, instead of yeah. saying I need some kind of, you know, background to be able to understand what is actually happening here from a philosophic perspective. Right. You were going to say something? No. I don't remember it <laughs> And it'll come. And and I think, you know, Mortimer Adler talked about the, the sort of by the barbarity of specialization. Yeah, sure. That sure. without philosophy, um, we become barbaric in our in our sort of narrow view of the oh, world. Totally. This is why um in, in another life, if I could just do it all again, I'd go there for my, my bachelor's degree. But Thomas Thomas Aquinas College uh, in California has mm -hmm. one one major and it's just a liberal arts major uh, you right. just get you just you read the great books you read some science you read some history you read philosophy you read psychology and you get and, and certainly the, the scriptures and theology and you get formed and you get this 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 broad understanding of like everything before you specialize right, right. then you go and then you learn some specific you become a politician or a doctor and usually quite successful it seems like they produce a lot of really really savvy people um yeah, yeah. so wyoming catholic college i just like their outdoor program do they do that too they do they, that, yeah. yeah so so cool yeah, the there, there are a number of I, I think it should be said there are a number of programs that use that sort of classical right. great books st program. john's i think in arizona but this one I'm in particular really sure, look at their but, but look at their Thomas syllabus yeah. sometime it's really incredible and yeah. you do a lot of math it's really it's very rigorous yeah, yeah. and yeah so um are you, but this is Today is about one philosopher, yeah. one theologian in particular, which is Thomas Aquinas. And one topic. And one topic. So, um, Thomas Aquinas, kind of narrowing it down, what was his sort of vision of 
thoughts and and how that might relate from a psychological and psychotherapeutic understanding a uh, couple of things first there's like a lot of front loading we need to do you if you had five Thomists in a room and asked them that question you might get like six opinions so <laughs> it's not there there are different even within Thomism there are different uh, understandings of what he actually said uh, and and also he wrote so much Thomas Aquinas wrote so much that um, you know, you really have to, you know, today we're going to give you a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of of Thomistic understanding. So we're going to be talking about... And, and of our understanding and of, our understanding. of what Thomas is, uh, Thomas is saying. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I'll, I'll also say that I, I feel, after all these years of reading philosophy, like, such a neophyte. Like, I don't know anything. And, um, and so I also want to give that caveat that I could say things that are wrong. And, you know, I, I appreciate learning. That's one of the things I like about dialoguing with people, especially Thomists, they're never shy about correcting each other. They just go for <laughs> That's it. That's true. Um, hopefully charitably. So, thoughts. The reason we're talking about thoughts is because a couple episodes ago, we talked about Evagrius. He had a lot to say about the logismoi. The logismoi. 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 Yeah. It's a fun word to say. Logis it sounds like a f frozen yogurt place or something. Logismoi? It sounds yeah. like a Greek, like Greek frozen yogurt. Yeah. Yeah. Yum. Why would you ever eat Greek frozen yogurt? I don't that know. Is disgusting. that a thing? I don't There's know. Probably. They're probably. There's more protein. Probably freaking out about it somewhat, but. <laughs> yeah, then we talked about how Evagris um, tells his young monks to challenge their, their negative thoughts, much the same way Aaron Beck would tell his patients in, you know, um, psychotherapy and, and cognitive therapy to challenge those cognitive distortions. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was less interested in therapy per se but he has a lot to say about thoughts and also some cool things to say in the summa about health and happiness and flourishing and even what we would today call anxiety and depression but specifically with thoughts thomas has a very well developed theory of epistemology for 10 points what does that word mean oh 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 go for it the study of knowing what we know yep the study of knowledge. Uh, he wouldn't have called it that either. He would have called it psychology, I think, actually. This, yeah, and in, in that way he means the study of the soul. Yep, the study of the soul, the psyche, and in particular if it's the study of the human soul, it's the study of the, the rational soul, or the intellectual soul, the soul that knows. So he he's referred to as a realist. A realist is someone who thinks we can have real knowledge of things. This is a big difference between a lot of more uh, modern thinkers and more ancient thinkers. For modern thinkers like Locke and um, Descartes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think Descartes. Um, what we know are our own thoughts, the intelligible, um, the concepts in our mind or the intelligible species is that which we know. For the ancients, our concepts or the in particular the um, intelligible species, we'll go into that in a minute, is that by which we know things. So you can think of it as, um, if you, you know, when you look in a mirror, you see yourself, you don't see the mirror. The mirror is that by which you know you see yourself. Um, if, you, if this analogy holds, then a modern philosopher who's a little bit more skeptical would say, the mirror is actually that which we perceive. So for Aquinas, we have concepts in the mind through which we know real things as they are. So we, there's no disconnect. There's this um, Latin that roughly translates to the adequation of the intellect and the world. There's some fit, right? There's some goodness of fit between the world outside of us and our minds. And that's why 
none of these like puzzles that's why like no one in the middle ages wrote the matrix the movie the matrix like they didn't have those worries they weren't like oh what if it's all a dream like they didn't <laughs> didn't occur to anyone to, yeah. to worry about something so silly or if it did it was easily solved as a thought experiment that was you know i mean they, this problem had been taken up in the past but never never uh <laughs> as a serious threat okay um the, fir the first major principle to, to go over is that all thought begins in the senses. We talked about this in the Montessori episode. Mm -hmm. So thoughts, this is the difference between, roughly the difference between an Aristotelian and a Platonic epistemology for Plato and, and the Christians who followed Plato, like Augustine. Um, you, you know, we, and Descartes, actually Descartes also, uh, God, God, we have some direct contact with the with the world of forms or with God's mind, and that's the channel through which we get concepts. So Plato has a dialogue called the Mino, where the slave boy is like taught the Pythagorean theorem, and he's like never learned it in school. and And the idea is that um, Socrates or Plato through Socrates is proving that we have all this knowledge already in our psyche, and we just need to like uncover it, which is kind of trippy. Um, Aristotle's more, you could say, like down to earth for Aristotle you first need to actually observe things in the world of sense experience through like taste, touch, sound, smell. And, and through your senses, you, you can start to abstract universal concepts, which is something only human beings can do. Any questions so far? So the way, it's really funny that you say this. I remember back when I was studying at Saint, uh, the University of St. Thomas, uh, I was walking Irony. down the street. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a different, it's a different uh, St. Thomas. It's yeah, 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 in, yeah. Up in Minnesota. Sure, sure. Uh, I was walking down, it's right on the banks of the Mississippi, and we're walking down, and it's right with, I, with another seminarian, and we're walking down this path, and there's these other guys walking back talking about how, you know, this final in uh, philosophy is um, not really a big deal because you already have the knowledge in you. You just have to kind of discover it. And it was like, I was sitting there being like, that's all fine and dandy if you really believe that, which I doubt. Because, mm -hmm. you know, but that's all fine and dandy. But you would still need to access that knowledge yeah. um, when you sit down with that piece of paper. Where, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the big kind of counters to this, this philosophy. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that right. are going to say that, you know, this is not quite the case but uh, or that I'm not representing it quite accurately but we as as people who come basically children of Aristotle um, in a philosophic sense oh. would then say that it is because I see the tree yeah I therefore can have a understanding of what that tree is and I can extrapolate from that 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 thing is a tree because I have seen other trees, I understand this kind of commonality of trees. Yeah, the universal. Um, the universal characteristic of tree. That's the next step. Uh, there, yeah. Um, yeah, I, to like muddy it up, so that's like the simple narrative. Like Aristotle is like the empiricist and Plato is like the, the mystical weirdo. Actually, um, there is even within Aristotelianism, within Thomism, a tradition that also says that actually... Um, there's these cryptic passages in De Anima where he talks about the agent intellect. And th these cryptic passages led some of the Arabic commentators to posit that there's actually one universal agent intellect that we all participate in. So hive mind. Hive mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. there actually, even within this tradition, there's this sense in which um, we, we have something of the divine. We're somehow connected to the divine. Uh, that's Aristotle calling to correct me. Calling, yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's the channel through which we understand um, and sense things. But, but for the most part, I think you can, you can divvy it up that way, where Aristotle is more of the practical empiricist. Is that anyone important? Am I getting... 
I don't. It's actually Aristotle saying you're doing a good job explaining it. Yeah. He's giving me positive reinforcement. That's awesome. It's really funny because here, here in the Catholic Church, we we still have landlines, um, apparently, so they still ring through. Who knew? That I hadn't seen that in a long time. So that's weird. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's the first step is, is to sense something you, even sensation is a multi-step process. There's a really, really good essay that you can read for free online, um, in an out of print collection called an essay on sensation by, oh, I wish we had Pauline here, Yves Simon. Yeah. Yves Simon. It's and like you can Ives. see that, you can see that link to that specifically down in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put that there. And that's uh, the best, um, the best essay I've ever read from a Thomistic perspective on how sense, sensation works. You can't understand thought without first understanding sensation and perception. And so that's, and even within that, you can spend your whole career, your whole life studying the theory of sensation. Um, I'll say also as a quick note that I've been reading some like more, like neurological perspectives on sensation. There's this writer, Antonio Damasio. He wrote a book called Descartes' Error. Actually, he wrote a book called Descartes' Error. Descartes was so wrong. He's so wrong that even Damasio can see it. And uh, another book called The Feeling of What Is or something like that's the one I'm reading now. It's about consciousness. He's a neurologist who writes about the kind of the, like the brain, but like from a very philosophical perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how much um, I can just nod my head in agreement with like so much of what he says about sensation and perception is amenable to an Aristotelian understanding. The difference is that for the modern materialist, you you're missing some crucial theories that actually prevent you from having a full theory of sensation. And there's still this like disconnect between like your sense organ and the outside world, but like the qualia problem, it's called the qualia right. problem. But okay. So for Aristotle, there's that fit. You sense something there's some way in which you're united to the thing you sense. And then you get this thing called a phantasm. And that's, it's, it's hard to quite figure out what he means by phantasm. Some people think phantasm means like a sensory image in your mind. So like if we close our eyes and think of an elephant, we can do that. If we close our eyes and try to imagine the melody to uh, the happy birthday song, we could probably do that. So we have some like m image that's left over after the real object of sensation fades away. Other people think the phantasm is like a, an appearance. Like it's a, sort of like a perception or value judgment that we stamp onto the things we see. So like animals have these, like um, like when you're out at night on a summer night and, fl and flies start swarming to the light on your porch, their phantasm of the light is good, desirable thing. And they fly right into it. So that's what some people think. Either way, all we know is that the phantasm is this link that you you have after the perception occurs, after the sensation occurs, and from the phantasm, you can start your your intellect can start to act on it. That's the thing Deacon was talking about. So the intellect, you have two parts to it. You have an active part and a passive part. The active or agent intellect um, gets an intelligible species from the phantasm that uh, essentially renders it knowable and that you mentioned like universal like what's common to all trees when you know something you know it because it's universal not because it's particular and uh i have a cool proof of that Ready, try to go. try uh, try both of you to form a coherent sentence that doesn't include well, any, any universal <laughs> terms so no common nouns so you could say like Peter, but you can't say man. You could say um, you could say holy protection, but you can't say church. 
and you can't use any terms that are universal that can be predicated multiple ways. So... Give me, a, give me a sentence that I could understand that uses only particular terms, no universal terms. Hmm. So, for example... So, the exact opposite of that would be, he walked there. Yeah, yeah, he, you know, he so, so you can have for... a mix, there's a mix, right? He would be referring to a particular person. Walked is some universal thing that you understand, like, like you know that he's walking, and Deacon Basil walks, and you walk, so you have that understanding, and then there you understand is some place. So, how about Joe jived mm -hmm. to the McDonald's? Okay. Was that particular enough? He jived. Do you know what a jive is? Well, you know what a jive is. And I'm guessing Joe is not the only person that can jive. Hmm. You also included a preposition, to which I understand what it means to go to something because I've seen multiple instances of that. Hmm. Yep. Sarah, the whole it's point is that you can't. That's, yeah. so that's yeah. why I exactly. just completely stopped. Exactly, exactly. So if, if, I, if I said a sentence like, uh, you know, if I made up a bunch of gibberish, like, you know, like the Jabberwocky poem? Yeah. Oh, yes. The Jabberwocky poem where it's like, Jabberwocky mimsied to the Pipsy Doodle. Like... If those things are so... Well, first of all, those are just words that are made up, but, like, ostensibly have meaning. But, like, suppose those are terms that only apply to a single instance. They would be unintelligible to us. Right. The only reason why we know what a podcast is is because we've seen multiple instances of it. We understand it as a universal. The only reason we understand what it means to jive is because, you know, jive is something that um, more than one person can do. So they're predicated uni um, universally among many. So then we, we have to take that particular thing that we observed, like whatever, you know, tree, whatever your example was, and our intellect has to figure out what's, what's, the, what's universal. Um, not the place that it's in, right? Because that's particular to this tree. Even like some of the other characteristics of the tree might be particular. Now there's certainly degrees of universality, like, you know, this tree could be, um, could have bark, um, or let's, let's give a different example. This tree could have, like, what's something that grows on trees? Leaves. Uh, needles. But like, like more, like only on one type of tree, uh, like pine, pine needles. Pine needles. This yeah. tree could have pine needles, which is which has a degree of universality because other pine trees have that. But you want to find what's common to all trees, and so that's that's sort of the work of the intellect is is finding the most universal level, and then establishing that as the essence, and then um, it gets turned into a concept stored in the possible intellect. So there's a lot going on there, but the long and short of it is that we have a, a chain of links that takes us from the real world into our minds, and there's no break at any point. So there's this like seamless continuity between sensation and between the thing you sense and the concept in your mind. So you don't have to worry that you're in the matrix. You can actually perceive real things and know them. Um, I understand that intellectually on a very high level yeah, that yeah. is very true but it still makes my brain hurt to hear you say all those things yeah and then and then also there's some it gets even more complicated when you think about like you know there's optical illusions and we're so often mistaken about things like you know we could think oh yeah I, i've seen enough uh, swans to know that they're all white so the es part of the essence of a swan must be that it's white but then you see a black swan and it like throws your whole theory off so 
there's there's a lot that can be said. Yves Simone actually takes up a lot of these issues in his essay on sensation, and good Thomists engage seriously with them. But Yves Simone says something interesting in this in this essay. He says that, you know, there's a famous modern psychologist who's writing this decades ago, so I, I don't even remember who it is, but at the time who called sensation uh, a hallucination that turns out to be true. And I think that's very telling that that's what a modern psychologist would define sensation as, because they're there's this general skepticism about our ability to connect with the outside world. So right away, I think this can be very comforting for our clients. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people are beset with anxieties about the truth, mm-hmm. our ability to know the truth. I would agree. And there's a, a sort of comfort there in, in this Thomistic understanding of the human person. Like, there's something I find very comforting. And, and honestly, like... Um, it res something it re- really resonates like yeah of course like we are made to know the truth like aristotle says by nature all men desire to know and we can achieve that goal it's not impossible yeah deacon basil's like what <laughs> no 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 i i mean and i think i think there's you know a certain characteristic of saying this is like okay this helps me understand that I'm not in the matrix, which I think is actually a pretty profound statement when you really think think that through that, okay, this is actual reality. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, sometimes I've thought myself, like, this is so absurd what yeah. I have to deal with on a daily basis. You know, I don't know, dealing with one of the therapists that works with me or something. It is so absurd <laughs> that it can't this can't be real and yeah and i think you know that's th- there is a reason on a sort of experiential level where the existentialists and and the others kind of do deal with this and 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 have at least on an experiential level some some uh way that people can agree with that yeah but the problem is is that you know sometimes things are just crazy yeah, you know, sure. so, sometimes the world is just insane around you. Yeah. And um and that's just that's just it. Yeah, I mean part of that is the fact that we live in a fallen world and things aren't things are a little screwed up. Yeah. Right. It's I kind of incredibly screwed up. Yeah, and I like that eastern understanding of the fall is like not just now like man gets born with original sin transmitted sexually through his genetic lineage, but the whole like cosmos is fractured. Is that like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that 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 everything is the relationship between man and creation, the relationship between man and God, between um, each other and within the self. Yeah, and principally, and this is a whole conversation for a few weeks from now, actually. <laughs> but um, nice. principally, that is the fear of death. Oh, wow. that is behind behind all sin. Yeah. That I am a gluttonous person because I am afraid. I'm trying to medicate myself away from the existential reality that that I will die someday. Confronting our mortality, sure. And that that is concupiscence in and of itself. Yeah, and so the that can that fallenness can make can obscure our our ability to perceive, and also our own biases and our own psychologies can can impede our ability to see things as they are. Yeah. I think this comes out most profoundly and fully (laughs) when people try to debate like politics and they're each like they're perceiving through they're using euphemisms and they're perceiving through symbols that they've assimilated and like the two people 
talking or using different symbols and there's just like no contact with the re with reality so what we want to do is get super zen and try to see things as they are try to divest ourselves of our biases and um and so this is where kind of this connection between thomas and cognitive therapy comes in for there's a nice article i found a while ago for tom uh, that, that draws out these connections it's by oh cool name giuseppe butera and he talks about something called the cogitative sense the cogitative sense exists kind of midway between the senses and the in, and the intellect and it it evaluates things uh, kind of like that phantasm we talked about mm -hmm. so we never just have pure sensation like uh the other day my wife and i were driving and it was a hot day and i saw like an ice cream place just down the street actually on university and i was like bonnie like, bray bonnie bray and bonnie I, bray i didn't just see bonnie bray i saw like the the idea of tasty ice cream on a summer day even if that was kind of unconscious and right. like uh like we were just kind of thinking how nice it would be to just sit down and have ice cream and like this this object of desire presented itself to me and like almost without thinking i like pulled in you know we we got ice cream um that's called good advertising yeah something about it you know it looked kind of old-fashioned and so maybe it resonated with me as something like more authentic and aesthetically pleasing so this happens all the time like when you see someone you see a coworker you don't want to talk to and you kind of like grimace or you're like man i gotta make a beeline for like the water cooler to avoid them why are you looking at me when you're saying this oh because i happen to work with an ornery therapist who's hard to get along with oh, but dang. Uh, i don't want to say who it is <laughs> Um, it's not me. So we're, we're evaluating. We're evaluating our sense, uh, sense images and evaluating our intellectual concepts all the time. We never just have them like pure or at least rarely. And so the cognitive therapy comes in from a Thomistic perspective by saying, let's look at those evaluations because we can actually understand them on a meta level. We can like zoom out and think about them critically like I just did. Like once I thought about it more, I realized why... Um, why that Bonnie Bray sign and that store facade, that storefront looked so appealing to me. It's because I have these associations and I used to work at an ice cream place in high school and I, and I like ice cream. It's not any more complicated than that. It's like Mr. Psychoanalyst. No. <laughs> um, really? And how does no. that make you feel? <laughs> no, I have something I, about my mother. <laughs> and, 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 um, I think, you know, one of the things that CBT and cognitive therapy in general gets accused of is not really caring about a past life experience. And I think that's very, very oh, wrong yeah. that I gain my core beliefs that then influence my automatic thoughts, which then influence my emotions because of my past life experience. Totally. And I think that's exactly where you're kind of coming from. Why did you like the, uh, why did you automatically think of how wonderful the ice cream would be? It was because you had experiences of good ice cream in that's the past right. and it probably connected to you to, I don't know, happy experiences with, you know, going to get ice cream totally. and, and all of those things so that you had the core belief that ice cream, or perhaps a belief, <laughs> I, you have the core at the deepest level. No, you had the belief then that it would be worthwhile yeah. having the ice cream because yeah. of your past experience, because of the uh, the intellectual image that you had of, of, uh, of this. Totally, of totally. This. Our perceptions and our understandings are, are the product of a lifetime of experience. Another book draws this out really well. There's a really thorny issue in Thomistic epistemology about how we know ourselves. 
because you know, we just walk through the process of understanding something by perceiving it externally and then like having a concept of it. Like how could that happen with yourself? How can the soul turn in on itself to perceive itself? So there's an excellent book called Aquinas on Human Self-Knowledge by Therese Scarpelli-Cori. I won't go into her, ex her answer. She has a very satisfying explanation for this. Um, but the, the, uh, the relevance here is that she talks about the way our understanding of the self is informed by all of our actions, like the, the, the accumulation of a lifetime of thoughts, feelings, and experiences. And so think about that, the relevance of that to therapy. Like how many people have a flawed understanding of themselves or of the world because of biases, because of negative experiences, and then there's this like um, feed forward loop where like now all they can see is the world through a negative filter. Yeah. So for example, trauma might be an, an expression of that because of a past traumatic experience, let's say a car crash, then you have this understanding um, moving forward that the world is not safe, that the highway isn't safe, that driving isn't safe, and I need to have reactions to that. Um, that actually brings up, that was way. a perfect example. Um, in the Netflix Marvel series, Jessica Jones, uh, her family is killed in a car crash and she is the lone survivor and she does not drive. And she lives in New York and takes cabs and subways. That's fine. Everywhere. You don't need a car in New York. You <laughs> take true. the subway. I haven't seen that show, but uh, I'll take your word for it. But I think, I think, I, but I think that's exactly it. Is that you know, in that situation, we all have that kind of image in our mind of of and, and sort of belief that we have that it's not safe. Mm -hmm. Trauma also has this sort of automatic characteristic to it, where um, you know, it's not just. You, you can't just reason yourself out of it necessarily. No, no there's no. all sorts of other things, and I, I know that's you not. Have saying, you, right? have you, have to, it, you, you have to live it. You have to feel it. You have to experience it. You experience it. And, and there's yeah. a lot of what you know, whether that's cognitive exposure therapy, whether that's CBT um, in that regard, whether that's EMDR, psychoanalysis, um, psychoanalysis. You know, whatever these things might be, it it does take quite a bit of effort, um, and and really needs to be done within a within a therapeutic environment. So just. But I think the good news about that also, just because we brought up trauma, is that there's a lot that can be done for there's trauma. And, uh, and yeah, there's, there's a great deal of hope in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. We're notoriously bad at reasoning our way out of our own neuroses. Oh, yeah. You know just what I mean? Just because I know something that I'm thinking is wrong yeah. doesn't actually prevent me from getting trapped in those thought patterns. Yeah. What's St. Paul, you know, say? Like, I do that which I hate. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I yeah. don't do that what I want to do. Yeah. Like, we, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I just don't do it. So yeah, it's not enough just to have this like intellectual philosophical knowledge of how we should act. Like, like a deacon is saying, you would need to experience it, go through the process. And that oftentimes involves one of these treatment modalities. Right. Which I think we should probably talk about at some point at length moving forward. So sure. That's kind of That'll awesome. be super exciting. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. So uh, wrapping it up, I guess, you know, for, uh, for, for someone out there who's lost in the cosmos of the modern world and doesn't understand their place in the universe, doesn't even understand how we could ever have certainty about anything in the universe, doesn't understand that um, their, their world can be grounded in any sort of concrete experience. I mean, they would benefit from just a little crash course in Thomistic epistemology just to have the certainty that they, um, the world they're seeing is in fact the, the world as it is, truly. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and then this, this like cautionary caveat, like, but beware, your perceptions are going to be filtered by your past experiences and, you know, your cogitative sense is going to be evaluating things around you. And so 
make sure, you know, be mindful of that. Be mindful in your day-to-day life. Think about how many times you, you assign value judgments to the things around you. And are those value judgments true? Are they working for you? Mm-hmm. I sometimes think um, that the real advantage of Catholic psychotherapy is sometimes just to be reassured that you are sane and in, in an insane world. Yeah. Yes. Um, I sometimes get that sense that my job is just to be like, yeah. This is the proper reaction. Yeah, this is the, the proper reaction. You're not overreacting. Yeah, exactly. It's really, exactly. no, it's really that bad. And, and sometimes it does, and there are other things that, you know, happens that we do, but, you know, I think there is a great deal of value to be able to, to mm-hmm. um, kind of think about that in those terms. And, you know, if, if there is an issue um, with people out there thinking, uh, well, I don't know, you know, what, how to do that, uh, you know, reading Thomas Aquinas is not sufficient. Therapy is also um, important, too. Mm-hmm. But boy, oh boy, no, nothing nothing grounds you like a good old Saturday morning reading of Thomas's commentary on De Anima. Mm-mm-mm. Well, I will certainly keep that in mind moving forward. <laughs> I, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're the one who reads, like, Benedict's encyclicals for fun. I do. But I also watch superhero yeah, shows. Yeah, Jessica Jones. That's all right. I watch worse things than that. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. See you next time.